Walk a mile in these Louboutins But they don't wear these shits where I'm from Hello and welcome to the Voices of Echo podcast. I'm your host, Doug Wagner. So today we're joined by uh, Sean Burke, our new Chief Commercial Officer. Hi, Sean. Hi, Doug. Thanks for uh, letting me participate in this. So, a uh, lot to talk about here. Let's start with you and really where your career got started. And I know that you mentioned the other day in the town hall meeting that you come from a freight family. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it was actually an interesting story. My father started off working for the railroad when he was 17 years old. He actually had to lie about his age. Back then, they didn't do the background checks. And he started off as a switchman and kind of worked his way up through the railroad. And he went off to Vietnam and he came back and finished his degree at Long Beach State University. And when he graduated, his entire goal in life was to be a high school history teacher. But with everyone returning from the war, there weren't a lot of uh, high school teaching jobs open. So Railroad asked him, would you like to go into management? And he said, well, since I can't find a teaching job, why not? And it just kind of took off from there. And before that, on my mother's side, um, her father and her and her grandfather all worked in the railroad industry as well. So when I was a young kid, if I wanted to see my dad, the railroad was a six-day work week. So Saturday, you came in at 6 a.m. and you left at noon. He was a superintendent of the Southern California Feather River region for Southern Pacific Railroad at the time. I'd come in and I had two choices with my box of donuts that my dad would buy me on the way in. Either do freight bills or I could go down the yard and switch trains. So I always went down to the yard and switched some trains. So that's kind of how I got excited. And then when I went to college, to University of Arkansas, um, I was forced to pick a major. And I said, you know, my dad is always happy doing what he did. He worked really long hours, but he was always happy. And the, f- the folks that I would meet from his office were really nice. They had this camaraderie that I was always jealous about. And I didn't see from my other friends' fathers. So I'm like, I think I'm going to do what my dad does. So I majored in transportation and logistics and was lucky enough to be at a school that had the major. So when you talk about switching trains, that means like basically pulling the lever, which moves a piece of track so that the, the train can go from one track to another. Is that correct? Exactly. In the yard, what you do is they'll have a train with about 80 cars on it, and they're building out their deliveries of their line hauls. So you're switching between usually eight or nine tracks in that yard to build up the train, the power unit to come and hook up to it and take it off. So pretty boring job, but when you're 13, 14 years old, it seems like the coolest thing in the world. Is it dangerous? Um, you know, they used to call the management, the railroads, three-fingered management. Most of them were brakemen that lost their fingers. But in the old days, and I guess, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, most of the senior leadership was missing at least one digit. So my mom <laughs> didn't like me down there on the tracks when my dad did. Especially if you're only 13. <laughs> so where did you go to college? University of Arkansas, Razorbacks. All right. And yeah. uh, you studied transportation. Did you have a good time there? I had a great time there. You know, growing up in Northern California, it was a little bit of a culture shock, but I think it's all of our experiences and getting to see other people's views and learning how to interact and, and, and kind of be an outsider coming in and making those friends. So it was the best four plus years of my life. We'll just leave it. We'll leave it at four plus. Okay. okay. And how did you pick uh, Arkansas? It was the only D1 school that was recruiting me. So I was a swimmer and a water polo player my entire life. And... You know, I was pretty good. My dream was always to go to UC Berkeley or UCLA and be on the swim team. I blew out my knee my junior year of high school. It's amazing how fast the phone stopped ringing um, for sports if you're injured, especially back then. That was the late 80s, 1990. And uh, Arkansas is the only one. 
that still offered me a scholarship. So I went, I might as well go for the recruiting trip. So I head down there or head over there. And I just fell in love with a small college campus being in California. Everything was NFL teams or Major League Baseball professional sports. And I was down there for the Arkansas, I think it was Arkansas-Texas game. And this little town of 25,000 people grew to 100,000. And I was addicted to it from then. So go SEC, go Razorbacks. And did you compete there? No, I never did. In fact, they ended up canceling the swim program, which is probably why they offered me because no one wanted to come. They weren't sure if they're going to continue the program. And I realized that I really wasn't a morning person anymore in my life. Okay. And did you have any uh, high school or college jobs other than working at the railroad? Did. Funny story about, uh, I guess, a couple of things. I had some great jobs. I was a head, uh, as a head swim coach for a local team. I was an assistant coach. I did private swim lessons. But when I was 15 and a half, my father had given me the car. And my dad's one of those people, he tells you things once. There's no reminders after that. So at 15 and a half, when I got my driver's permit, my father uh, said, I'm getting this car for you now. So you learn to drive in the car that you'll have and you can be safe in it, but you cannot get your, use the car until you have a job. So it's three days before my 16th birthday. And my mom said, you know, you don't have a job. And I was like, yeah, so. And she goes, your dad told you, you can't drive the car unless you have a job. And I totally had forgotten. So I had to run out. So I applied at McDonald's, the only place that's going to hire a 15, 16 year old kid uh, in three days, got hired at McDonald's just so I could drive the car. And then my dad informed me that um, I had a, I made a commitment to the company, and so I had to stay there for a year. So I worked for a year at McDonald's. Okay. So <laughs> that's an interesting question. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Cheryl Johnson worked at McDonald's also. Hey, look, see? It's, uh, it's a great starting uh, place for a career. So what did you learn while you worked at McDonald's? Yeah, I think the first thing that I learned is really how to interact with people regardless of what their behavior is. Um, it's amazing, especially if you have the morning shift and you're opening up at 4 a.m. There's a lot of cranky people. And so especially when you're that young, your gut reaction is kind of punch back and be a little snippy back. But you can't. Right. That's the customer. And they're coming in for a service. And we had to provide it to them. So I think it was really good for me to learn to diffuse situations or interact with people that were angry, really about nothing. But that's just kind of part of life. Second one is it was the first real boss I had. It was a manager that, you know, I had tasks and I had duties. So I think learning that structure of how a company works and how to behave and the expectations there were fundamentally different than being a swim coach or giving swim lessons where you have a little bit more autonomy. So it was really good for me. And, and I'm also glad that I stayed with it for the full year because um, I'm a big believer in once you make a commitment, you follow through on those. And that comes from my father. Good. So, uh then after college, how did you get into the workforce? So in college, I actually did, I worked at J.B. Hunt Night Dispatch for a while. And then I did internships every summer. So one summer I did one with APL, the American President Lines, back when they were around. And I worked in their intermodal program. And then the following summer, I worked for the Union Pacific Railroad. So I really thought I'd go work for the UP. And one of the professors at University of Arkansas was also doing some consulting work with Hewlett Packard in the Bay Area. And so when they came back, uh, HP said, we'd be glad to interview some of your students. So I went to the interview, signed up, and I got offered a job with HP. And it was kind of a dilemma for me because um, my family was in the railroad. I wanted to do what my dad did. But gosh, this is 1995, I guess I was doing the interview. And HP was really 
kind of the start of Silicon Valley back then. It was this huge opportunity where I thought, wow, I can get into the PC world and do all of that. And so I decided to go with HP out of the gate. And my first job was a supply chain analyst. And I loved it. Um, that's really kind of where, you know, learned Excel, learned how to do the analytical work, a lot on inventory planning, a lot on uh, demand side planning. And opportunities back then, Silicon Valley was really blowing up. So there's a lot of people leaving to do startups which created very early opportunities for me to kind of move up in HP that would not become available. So I ended up becoming a transportation analyst on the global front, and I got to do some international travel, going over to Asia, going over to Europe, really loved it and enjoyed it. And at that time, all of transportation was centralized inside of HP, and they decided they're going to decentralize it. So in other words... Um, they had the PC division, the laser jet division, the inkjet division, the, the supplies division, and test and measurements. Well, that created, you know, from one logistics manager to, like, created about six. And everybody wanted the inkjet. Everybody wanted the laser jet. And there was this one job that was open, which was for the PC division. At the time, HP was the 17th largest PC manufacturer. That was, I mean, you can't even name 16 other ones today. No one wanted the jobs. So they came and tapped me, and they're like, do you want to try to do it? And I was very young. I'd never been a manager, but they literally couldn't fill a job. So I'm like, sure, I'll try it. Um, moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, Samina SCI was our contract manufacturer. It was just SCI back then. I did that job, and that was just domestically, and it was a lot of fun. And so you really got to learn growth. We went from 17 to 5 in the world of, of manufacturing of PCs in an 18-month period. So getting additional warehouse space around the world, setting up a transportation network. It was really interesting and fascinating. And that's really where I learned to do all the procurement piece as well as negotiating those contracts with distribution centers as well as transportation companies. And then ultimately I ended up in uh, uh, Massachusetts, Andover, Massachusetts, and I was the director of global trade logistics and distribution for their medical division. Hmm. Now, I remember back in the early 90s, Hewlett-Packard was really not only a technology company, but they were really a leader, a thought leader in supply chain management when that term was coming to being. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I remember several sales calls on, on HP up in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they were pushing this big idea that they referred to as merge and transit. And what yeah. that was was... Uh, you know, back then we had what, what were known as mini computers, and there were micro computers, which are PCs. But mini computers were sort of uh, systems that were bigger than a PC and smaller than a mainframe. Right. And when they would sell one to you know a company, uh, the different parts would be shipped from different parts of the world. You know, the monitor might come from Taiwan, and the you know the the motherboard and the box might come from. Singapore, and you know there were all these components, and 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 their challenge was we've got an installer sh showing up on uh, you know the twelfth of the month, and we want all of the parts to arrive on that day, despite the fact that they're coming from points all over the world, uh, but we want them all to meet the the installer there at the same time, and and by doing that, they were able to bypass shipping into a warehouse and then having to handle it and then reship it to the to the customer's location. So that was a term they called merge and transit. And the whole idea was to use LTL carriers kind of as a virtual warehouse. And I remember we were trying to figure out how to do that for them. And I believe they ended up hiring uh, Menlo Logistics to do it. We did. It was kind of interesting. There's a couple of different programs we did. Menlo um, Logistics 
I believe it was the first large-scale outsourced transportation management that's ever occurred. Um, and I was lucky enough to be on that team when I was an analyst. And so Bob Bianco, who ultimately became the CEO of Menlo before the acquisition by XPO, was a director from Menlo on site. So I got to learn from him a lot, too. The Merge and Transit program, I would call it a mild success. We The underlying carrier is actually CF Motor Freight, if you remember that. So we had a... L- <laughs> it had a lot of uh, eggs in that basket with CF Motor Freight. We did two big things with them, all managed by Menlo. One was the Merge and Transit program, and again, I'd call it mildly successful and, and had to go through a lot of tweaks throughout the years. But the other big program that we worked on was it was a program called X-Day. And the challenge that we were given by the executive team at HP was these PCs and the monitors were all coming through the world, but we had to have a way of guaranteeing the big the big distributors of PCs, whether it be a Best Buy or it be an Ingram Micro, those types of things, is what was the commitment on the delivery date? And so we did this whole analysis on inventory carrying costs, transportation costs, like what was the right way from a customer satisfaction perspective and also from a financial perspective. So it came up, X became three. It was a three-day program. And so we partnered again with CF back then, and all of our orders would drop. And for our listeners, tell them who CF is. Oh, CF Solidated Freightways, which is an LTL company that, and I guess they went out of business, what was it, 99, 2000? Yeah, but at one time they were the number one, oh, they were number two LTL carrier. Huge. And really a great, great company. Different story. Uh, when they closed, there was very little warning, right? So they just put the padlocks in the warehouses and we couldn't get our inventory Long, long couple of weeks for me in my career at that point. But the X-Day program was we had to get there in three days. So if it shipped on a Monday or Tuesday, we used the air freight. And if it was Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, it was going ground unless it could be reached by the ground. So it was this combination. It was kind of really early optimization of getting the TMS systems to understand what mode we had to go based upon delivery date. And that was a lot of fun to be part of those programs of early you know, mode selection at TMS, which then converted into optimization of multiple orders. When we started doing optimization, Menlo used to take over a conference room and they'd print out all the bill of ladings and they'd, then they'd start building them by hand, right, of which orders we were going to merge. And just for a moment, just pause and explain optimization for those that might not understand it. Sure. So when you look at optimization, there's kind of a couple of different ways to look at it. First, you can look at a mode optimization. What's the cheapest mode of meeting the requirements of the client to get there? So the order size itself may dictate that it's going to go LTL. And then the next question is, if it's going to go LTL, what LTL carrier to meet the transit time? And sometimes that's just not fast enough, so you'll actually go full truckload. Back then, there was no such thing as a partial program. So you'd actually go the full truckload. That gets pretty expensive. Now, back then, when PCs were going for three, dollars $4,000, um, you could kind of afford to do that with the margins we had on them. But you had a lot of wasted space in, in the truck. So then it became order optimization. So the question was, how do you aggregate orders that are going from like places to like destinations? And so the way, again, like we do that is if everything was shipping out of Huntsville, Alabama today, and there was 10 orders going to Chicago, and they were all two pallets apiece, you want to build a truckload instead of having the 10 LTLs. So we used to do it manually by eyeball, and then... Menla, with their engineers and with their IT, started building the first optimization engine that that we knew of and then ultimately ended up purchasing at the time. It it was I2 technology 
um, engine that was purchased to do that. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, I think, back then to be on the cutting edge at HP to see that. And that's really, you know, as I kind of shared at the town hall too, is I didn't grow up as a broker. I grew up as a shipper. And I think it gives me a unique perspective as to what the clients are looking for. Because a lot of times we simply look at what's the best cost of transportation. And the clients are really struggling with what's the right total cost of ownership. So they'll look at their transportation costs as a percentage of their revenue, but a lot of times they want to know their total landed cost internationally and their total cost of ownership domestically. So, for example, at, at HP, and this is back in the 90s, we used to have to grade our carriers on the on-time service, and we measured it by standard deviation. So if the transit time was supposed to be three days, what was the standard deviation? So we didn't really care if they were 98% on time or 92% on time. If that standard deviation kept getting shortened and shortened, it was really tight, then we could start planning the inventory. So by looking at standard deviation, you're really looking at reliability. Exactly right. And that was the most important thing to our shippers because the reliability is what drives their inventory planning. So how much buffer stock they'll have, how many days on hand they'll have. So if you're 98% on time, but that 2% is on average five days late, that kills them. They're going to increase their buffer stock. If you're 92% on time at the standard deviation is two hours, it doesn't change their inventory planning. I think it's an interesting point for our people in sales to think about. You know, it's really important you understand what the client's trying to accomplish because if they're shipping a high value product with big margins, the cost of transportation is probably less important. Whereas the, the, uh, the transit time and the reliability around that transit time are a lot more important. Absolutely. If you're shipping wicker baskets and, and uh, (laughs) you know, the transportation costs are eating you alive, then slow and cheap is probably your best option, right? Exactly. So let me give you kind of like, Two ends of the extreme. So I also worked for a company called Hudamaki, which is a consumer pack. Hudamaki. So they <laughs> finished as in Espoo, Finland, was their corporate headquarters. They they do packaging material. They own about 90% of the world market share on four-cup carriers. So if you go to McDonald's and they give you the four-cup, the paperboard, they make those. And they also have about 60 or 70% of the uh, market on ice cream containers. So they're very low commodities. So at HP, our logistics expense, which include transportation distribution at the time, and you're going back over 20 years, was 3.14%. I'll never forget because it was my budget number. Of the cost? 3.1% of cost was what transportation was. So for every dollar of revenue, right, 3.14 cents of pennies was going towards freight. Okay, so 3.1% of, of the sale price. Of the sale price. Got it. At, in, in the packaging company, we were running at 18.5%. Yeah, to your point, you have to understand the challenges of them. So Hudamaki, they could not afford to do, you know, what I earlier referred to as X day program. If that went on an airplane, there was zero profit left. You know, when you're running at 3.14% at HP, there's plenty of time to go ahead and play and get things there on time and expedite them. So it really does differ by vertical and what that company's overarching strategy is. You know, One of the things that's exciting to me that's taking place in the industry right now, for the first time in two years, we're starting to see inventory draw down. That's going to put different pressure, even on our retail customers. Now that they don't have the inventory to pull, they are going to be looking at service much more rigorously than they have for the last two years where they had the inventory to pull out. So all those things play in, and I couldn't agree with you more, is rates, 
service capacity is absolutely essential in what we do and how we sell. But having deep knowledge and being able to help the client solve a business problem is what will differentiate us from our competition. Great. So um, when your stint at HP was finished, what did you do next? So after HP was done, it's kind of a funny story. So the folks that have been around Echo for, for several years will know this. But and By the way, how long were you at HP? I was at HP from 95 until 2000. Okay. And <laughs> one of the programs I did at the end at HP was we wanted to have visibility globally of inbound supply chain. So we wanted to see once the PO was cut from our vendor in Asia – had it been had it been cut? Had it been shipped out of there? Was it at the CFS station in Asia? Had it gone on the ocean container? Had it arrived at the port? Had it been off the port? So it was really early stage visibility globally, which which hadn't been done. So it was a startup company called Solarix, and Solarix was one of the first companies to try to pull this off. And that was the owner and founder of that company was Evan Schumacher, the past chief commercial officer. So. I had actually hired Evan's company to deploy this. Unfortunately, it was not very successful, not because of Evan or Solarix, but a lot of just internal challenges at HP with different systems and different geographies. So we had to terminate the contract with Solarix. So I called Evan and uh, actually terminated the, the contract over the phone. And for those of you that know Evan, you can see this. Evan goes, you can't fire me over the phone. I'm going to fly out there and you're going to fire me in person. And I lived in Colorado Springs at that time. I said, come on out. I'll fire you wherever you want me to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Evan not taking no for an he answer. Do it. So he flies in. We meet for dinner. I told my wife, I'll be back in 90 minutes. I've just got to go down and have his dinner and explain to him why we're moving in a different direction. Well, the dinner was at 6, so I thought I'd be home at 7.30. I come stumbling home at about 2 a.m. in the morning. And my wife is like, what happened? I, and I said, I just quit HP and accepted a new job. So in typical Evan fashion, he's like, you understand the value of this product. You understand where it's going. If you're going to fire me, then you're going to come work for me. And I did. And, and, you know, in Evan fashion, over six hours of with him, I ended up leaving HP and working for Solarix, which was a lot of fun because it was my first opportunity to start up. You know, it was based in, in Massachusetts and it was this great building. There was, gosh, about 50 of us at the time. And there's cots everywhere because people would sleep at night. You had engineers running around like crazy. And I was responsible for the high tech vertical. So I had sales, I had pre sales, and I had implementation for our high tech clients. So it was my first taste of sales. And it was also my first t- uh, taste of a startup, which was fundamentally a different managerial um, than HP. Than HP. I mean, right? I mean, HP way. And I went through those trainings. So that was a lot of fun. And we ended up selling that company. At that point in time, I went to Hudamaki. And then after there, I went to YRC. So YRC, I was there for six years. I did uh, two different roles there. When I first started, all the time I worked actually for YRC Logistics. It's originally named Meridian IQ, which was the non-asset base, the third-party arm of YRC. It used to be transportation.com. That was actually the first acquisition they did. So my first job was to do all of the procurement at YRC. So I oversaw all of the procurement for LTL, for truckload, for our freight forwarders with our ocean providers, because we were also an NVOCC, a non-vessel and common carrier, and a freight forwarder and the air freight. 
So I did all the procurement for our clients as well as for our brokerage arm there. And I also led the initiatives of purchase transportation procurement for the line haul of the asset-based arms at YRC. I did that for three years, and that was a blast. Really enjoyed it. And that's where I got the first time to be on the 3PL side interacting with clients. And YRC at the time did two different acquisitions or joint ventures over in Asia. One was with a company called JHJ, uh, Jinhai Jiayu. And what they did is they were a class A freight forwarder in mainland China. So primarily ocean and air freight. And then they also did a joint venture, a 50-50 joint venture with a company called Jiayu, which is an LTL company in mainland China. So the idea was, was for all of the YRC national accounts that had manufacturing in China, we could do their intra-China logistics through Jiayu. So trying to take them not just from LTL, but to a 3PL, and then also sell our freight forwarding division. And we had freight forwarding offices in 10 other countries throughout Southeast Asia. Just to interrupt for a moment, it seems to me that having mainland China LTL and U.S. Domestic LTL are two operations managed by two different people. Totally. Is it hard to get a decision maker to give you both? It is. And that's really that you kind of hit on it why it didn't work. Um, the belief was that the decision maker in North America is they were tied to corporate could not only do the introduction to the LTL in mainland China, but could kind of force that decision. And that was just a wrong assumption. They could do the introductions, but they could not force those decisions that were over there. So we're, and the reason why the assumption was made is historically speaking on ocean freight, the decisions were made either in the U.S. or Europe, depending on the company. So even though the, the ocean containers were originating in Asia, the decision makers in the States. So they thought it would follow the same pattern with ground transportation in Asia, and it just didn't. So it was very hard to kind of get that off the ground and moving. And then we call it LTL in China. You kind of have to understand how China works. Very different than LTL as we know it. We had a couple of terminals that we could show clients of how it operates, but a lot of it what goes to what's called a freight market to get merged and off, you know, off board it's stripped and then, and then reloaded. When you get these freight markets, it looks like a flea market with trailers everywhere. And there's a driver with their truck and they'll say, you know, a thousand won, you know, per CBM going to Beijing. And you literally go up and negotiate right well, there. Isn't it also true that they really don't have trucking companies there? They have people who own trucks and the truck, the truck owners go to those marts and they're, they're typically serving one origin destination pair. And, and so you kind of go to the area that has the truckers that have a destination that you're interested in. That, and the truckload space. Yeah. What, what Jayu did, and it really did work well is they had their own drivers. And in fact, at their terminals, again, there weren't a lot, but their real terminals that they had, they actually had um, basically dormitories. The drivers would live at the dormitories. They had, you know, there'd be a room, there'd be four to a room, and they'd have beds and a shower and a bathroom, and then there'd be a shared kitchen. And they could also, if they didn't want to cook their own food, they could buy it. So the drivers actually lived there at the dormitory. So if you worked for one of the larger trucking companies, they were company drivers. The line haul move, though, you're correct. Most of the line haul operates exactly the way you you, you uh, outlined. Mm. It's a different world. It really is. It was it was 
a lot of fun and fascinating. And that's why I learned to write in bullet points. Mexico LTL operates much the same way. You don't see big network carriers, although there are a few emerging. Typically, if you've got a manufacturing location and a warehouse and you've got you know 20 destination cities in Mexico, you use 20 different carriers because each carrier services you know one destination. Right. And the, and the reason why you know, the local drivers lived in the dormitories is most of them were coming from inland China, and their families would stay there, and they'd just come to work. And we had – there's a large uh, holiday called Chinese New Year. And so everyone goes to their home cities. You know, the entire economy essentially shuts down for, for about seven days. And you want to talk about turnover, you usually would have 20 to 30% of the workforce never come back from Chinese New Year. Wow. So it gave a whole nother, you know, kind of a skill set to me, I guess, which is how do you plan for a, for a mass turnover that's known? It's really, really a challenge. It continues to be a challenge for them there. And you actually lived in Shanghai, correct? I did. I lived in Pudong, the Kangchao district. How was that? Loved it. Loved every minute of it. The only way I describe it is the first six months we lived there, my wife and my kids were there with me. My, every day I'd come home from work, my wife would be in tears for the first six months. When it came time to move back to the States, my wife cried for the last two months because she didn't want to leave. Once you figure out how to operate and where to go and how to shop, it's one of the most vibrant, beautiful cities I've ever seen in my life. The unofficial population is about 30 million people. The official population is 22 million. So they're just, you know, um, workforce that's not registered. Yeah, I traveled throughout China and, and, uh, there's nothing like Shanghai. It's, it's an amazing city. It is. It truly never sleeps. And, uh, did you mostly hang out with Americans or, or did you get to know some Chinese nationals? Absolutely got to know Chinese nationals. So you know, my entire staff were Chinese nationals. Um, now it's kind of interesting when they learn English and they take it, there's actually a grading score of how proficient they are. So I would always have to hire folks that worked for me that had a five, a five meaning that they were very fluent in English. Maybe not as fluent as you and I, but fluent. And so I had a great relationship with them. And it was always fascinating to me of how we looked at both defining a problem and of how to go about you know, solving it. So I had to quickly learn that my way was not going to be successful in China. And for those of you that know me, that's a little bit of a hard thing to get over at times. But it's very humbling and it's really interesting because a lot of how we work without thinking about subconsciously, we go about with all the norms, the social norms of, of what we've grown up with and what we know in the U.S. And so a lot of the ways we solve problems is based upon our, our social norms. When the social norms are totally different, the way you solve a problem also is very, very different. So it's fascinating for me and I think made me a better listener and made me a better manager by far. Hmm. So you came back. Uh, were you still with YRC at that time? I was. In fact, I worked for Greg Reed when I came back, okay. uh, which was fascinating. I knew I wasn't, you know, YRC was going through some struggles and they had actually asked me to stay in China a little bit longer and it just wasn't going to work out for my family. My One of the big things, the promise I made my wife when we went overseas is we'd come back in time for our kids to go to the same junior high school and the same high school. She didn't mind with all this crazy moving we did, you know, around the world and inside the United States. She was good with it as long as the kids got to set roots for junior high and high school. So we knew we were coming back and we knew we had to make a decision that we're somewhere we could stay for a long time. So I actually came back and decided to do the startup thing again. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, 
so it's called SHGL, Swan Hercules Global Logistics. And it was an international freight forwarder that we were starting up with direct to store being our, our niche market that we had. So if you kind of think about that as how do you build the consolidations to the point of origin in China? and make the delivery directly to the store, bypassing all DCs and CFS stations here. The economy, the timing just wasn't right. It was We had a, a joint venture in mainland China called Hercules that I had made contact with while I lived there, and then we had a private equity firm on the U.S. side. Um, decided that that was not going to to succeed. Unfortunately, there's really no exit strategy that we saw. So at that point in time, I went to Ryder and really enjoyed my time at Ryder. And Ryder, you were also involved with procurement, right? Yeah. So one of the things is I could not go into sales because I was the EVP of sales at SHGL. So I had a non-compete against me. Um, so I went to Ryder overseeing all the procurement and that grew into the operations for, for managed transportation as well. And so it was fun to get back on the procurement side and I had to kind of get all the rust off of me because I've been doing international now for the last five years kind of get re-engaged back in with the domestic side of the business. I think the exciting thing about Ryder, and, and we will get there, was the size of the accounts that we were working with. These are extremely large, very complex supply chain. So while it wasn't as cutting edge, maybe back at the HP days, it was fun to try to solve really complex problems again. That was really exciting to me. And then unfortunately, my phone rang again when I was not looking for a job by the same guy who made me leave HP, which was Evan Schumacher. And he said, will you please come to Chicago and talk with our team? And if you know Evan, you just say yes, and you just don't follow through on it. It's just the easiest way to get Evan off your back. And so after about five weeks of that, he called me and said, you're making me look bad if you don't come here. So I promised Evan. I got on a plane. I came out, interviewed with Doug, with yourself, Kyle, and Dave. And I did not want to like Echo because I was happy. I had this work-life balance at Ryder. And as soon as I walked in the door, I knew it was over because I loved the energy. You know, one of the places that makes Echo so unique is the people. And you feel it when you walk in the door, that energy. And I hadn't felt that at my past employers for a long time. Probably the last time I felt that special energy was HP. And then to feel that energy here again of people wanting to solve problems for clients and wanting to grow and be successful. And gosh, I think when I joined, we were 900 million. So we've doubled in size. It's been a ton of fun. All right. Um, so let's talk about Echo. So yeah. uh, first of all, congratulations on your new uh, promotion. Thank you. Now I have one throat to choke when it comes to sales and revenue, right? Who's that? <laughs> I'll send you a memo. <laughs> um, so, so talk about your vision for Echo as it pertains to, you know, growing the business. And, you know, what do you see as some of the opportunities and challenges uh, from where you sit? Obviously, you've been at Echo for a while. You've been very involved in a lot of different parts of the business. But, you know, now everything sales kind of reports up through you. And uh, as the title indicates you're in charge of uh, all the commercial business and the, and the revenue. So uh, what does it look like today? Yeah, today, you know, I think the interesting thing is Echo is an amazing company because it's grown both organically and then through acquisitions. And there's wonderful benefits of that because we get to see a lot of different ways folks did business. But it also means that there's a lot of unique ways of doing business at Echo. So, we'll, well, we are all on one IT platform, which is phenomenal. The way that we're doing business, the way that we're approaching the market is still very, very unique 
to the companies that we bought. I think there's benefits to that, but there's also certainly some challenges with that. So the way that we're structured today is there's really four unique, what I'll call sales channels, for lack of a better word. So we have our acquisition RVPs. So these are our companies that are out in the field that we purchase that were typically small to medium-sized businesses. So you know them as, you know, the Sacramento business unit or San Francisco or Echo West or Boston, et cetera. Those are all unique acquisitions. And so that's kind of one sales channel. And though the RVP branches, the way they operate is kind of think of them as a fully self-contained office. They have their own sales folks. They have their own operations individuals. And so each one of them by itself is almost kind of a unique business. Then we have what we call our multimodal um, business unit. That's 100% organic growth. So if you look at it's right, our Dallas, our Detroit, our Nashville, our Atlanta, and, and uh, Scotty and Jared's team here in Chicago, it's fascinating to me to see their success because they grew organically. They weren't given any revenue. And the way that they hire and approach the market is vastly different than what we do in the field. Typically in the field, in the RVP field, we either hire seasoned sales individuals um, and call them outside sales executives, or we hire agents that they kind of eat what they kill. And then for, uh, for multimodal, they really hire the new hires, and they come up to the training, and they start off as Tier 1 and build up. Both have been really successful. Then the third channel is really our CBU channel, right? And so, which, you know, it used to be called Command, and that acquisition, they were really brokers. And so their training program and the way they kind of went out to the freight was fundamentally different. And then the fourth sales channel is really our agents and our stations under the leadership of Nick Leckow. And so if you look at all four of those, you know, for me, the way I'm coming and approaching is saying, what are the similarities? Because I think we all have way more in common than we have differences. It's easy to sit around and identify the differences. But we have to approach the market together in one way, with one value proposition, with one brand. Yeah, it's kind of funny. When you're small, everybody can go after everything because every new piece of revenue is great. As you get larger, you have to be worried about your branding in the marketplace. What are they hearing? What is our value proposition they're hearing? So my vision is, is that we're all part of one team, and that one team is wanting to grow and create value and exceed client expectations. If we do those things, well, there should be plenty of money to be made. So I'm right now working on what are the similarities to identify those together, and then what are the true unique elements of the business, because there will be some unique pieces of it. So I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I do know this. We're going to give clarity on how we're going to go to market. We're going to give clarity on what our value proposition is to our clients. And we're all going to be kind of rowing in one direction. That's, that's my vision. Great. Let's talk about managed transportation for a moment. I think it's um, an important part of what we do. It's been a key element of our growth. And yet, I think there's so much more opportunity. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, the Echo Managed Trans offering. You know, what... What makes it special compared to other companies? You know, what part of the market are we going after? Uh, how big is the market? What part of the market makes sense to us? And what do we need to do to be better at, at offering that service and attract more business? Uh, so you asked like 19 questions in one sentence. That was impressive. Um, so first of all, managed transportation, you know, I think to me will always hold kind of a special place in my heart only because when I was at HP as we talked about we selected Menlo and that was a managed transportation so I think the first thing is is 
I want to kind of define for everybody who's listening is what is managed transportation. And kind of the elevator pitch, if I have to explain it to somebody, is we become the transportation department for our client. That's the easiest way for people, I think, to kind of understand what it is. It allows our clients to focus on what they do best, whether that's R&D, whether that's marketing, distribution, or manufacturing. Let us worry about the outside of their four walls, either getting the product into the manufacturing facility or the finished goods out to their clients in a cost-effective manner. So we become the transportation department. So we're literally part of our client. We want them to view us that way. And I think Mike Mobley and his team do a great job of that. So when you look at that, you say, what does that include? So we always say it includes four elements. The first element is network design. So when we begin early stage of talking to a client is understanding what are their pain points that they're trying to solve. Right? We're not going in there with rates. We don't ever talk about rates to the very end, but it's understanding how do they do business today, what are the pain points that they have, and how are they trying to differentiate themselves through transportation. So we call that network design. If they buy into that, they give us data. Bill Hamoki's team does a terrific job of looking at that data and saying, here's your current cost structure to do that. Here's your current transit times. And oh, by the way, if we remove some of these constraints that you have, whether it's lead time or transit times or optimization, we could reduce your cost by this much. So we design the network. And then what you move into is you source it. So once you know what your needs are, what the transit times are, what the modes are, et cetera, now we source it, and we the, the sourcing team under Mark Rodini and, and, and group do a terrific job across the board because we're able to go out and get client-specific pricing. So we'll use our blanket pricing when it's appropriate. We'll do client-specific pricing when the volume warrants it. So it's different type of rating structures. So we have the network design, we have the sourcing, then you get into the execution. It's the operations. So everything a client does, we have to do. When the order comes over, we've got to make sure that we know what carrier it's getting assigned to, what cost, what the pickup is, when the delivery is, do the tracking of it, do the reporting on it, and then doing the freight bill audit and payment as well. So it's much more than we would just do as a broker transactionally. We have to do the, the full gamut there. Last piece is the analytics. You know, Client supply chains change rapidly. I used to joke at HP, by the time I write an RFP and submit it out, our network's already changed. It's an invalid RFP. I mean, it's just changed so rapidly. So I think the secret sauce to us is the analytical arm, right? The continuous process improvement is continuously looking at their data, looking for areas to improve, right? And if you haven't read the book, good to great. I suggest everybody do it. But it's always looking, even when we're doing well, how do we become better? How can we continue to tweak the network design or the IT flow to make it more efficient? And that's really the differentiator for us. So those are the four components, right? Design, source, execute, and analytics and continuous process improvements. So that's what it is. What I think makes us so different at Echo is most of our competition go in. And it's tough to sell against because they'll show a year one value proposition, right? Most 3PLs can come in and squeeze the lemon a little bit and save some money on transportation procurement. But that's only good once. So if you've got a $5 million spend and I save you 10%, it's half a million, but it's half a million once, because on year two, now they're setting their budget, $4.5 million. So you come into year two and the client's saying, what did you do for me in year two? And that's the difference for us is 
the teams, the AEs, the OMs, uh, the AMs, and our directors work their tail off to partner and collaborate with the clients to understand what's changing at their company so we can add value in year two. Because you can't just reduce pure transportation costs years two and three. Remember, these are three-year contracts. That's the differentiator for us. And historically, we've always gone after what I call a small to medium-sized market. And by the way, that's one of the things that attracted me here. So when I came from Ryder and I talked about how large their clients were and how complex it was, that's exciting and fun. But it also meant there was this huge, huge market of shippers that needed the value. They needed an outsourced transportation team to do it. And the cost structure of the IT infrastructure and a lot of the larger 3PLs, like a rider, et cetera, their implementation costs would equal the freight costs of a lot of these small to mediums. I think that's where ECHO really differentiated is coming in and be able to deploy fast and at low cost. So I think we've done a fabulous job in the small to medium-sized market. We don't want to slow down there at all. We want and, and how would you define the small and medium-sized market based on freight spend? Yeah, so we in, in managed transit, you usually call it FUM, freight under management. Um, this is kind of the industry lingo. So small to medium-sized, I kind of look at $10 million of FUM or less. So if their transportation spend that's going to be with us is less than $10 million of FUM, I kind of look at that as the small, the small space. The medium space is anywhere from kind of 10 to 20 million. And we've done a great job in the small. We've done a good job in the medium. And we've got some clients that are larger than that, right? We've got Greenheck. We've got Sears that just went live. Those are the bigger deals. And the, the technology requirements, those, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the ante to be at the table for those continues to go up. And that's where we're working, you know, with yourself and Dave and Miles to continue to build that out. I think we do a great job on the small to medium space. I, we're getting competitive in the bigger space and we've just got to build out a few key missing elements there. And I think that uh, the world better look out for us in the large deals. And what are some of those missing elements that we need uh, technology to yeah. allow us to do? There's a couple of, um, of areas. Number one is our optimization that we do today. And we spoke about that earlier in our conversation. The optimization piece for us is still very much manual. And so to get to the high volume, that has to become automated. So both the, the mode selection as well as the building multiple orders into multi-stop truckloads. The second piece for us is being able to work in the world of orders. Today, everything we work at, we work at in a load level, right? So the client passes us a load. We might optimize the shipment, right? They pass the shipment. We've got to plan the shipment. We need to start working in orders. And talk about the difference between a shipment and an order. Yeah. So, I mean, an order to a client, right, is is if they've got a customer that's got it doing a purchase order, all they know is that that client needs 20,000 widgets. And so... What we're, well, we can't handle 20,000 widget demand. We'd have to have them send over and say, I need a thousand widget because that equals a truckload. So being able to take out the 20,000 and then stripping that out into a type of transportation. To be clear, the 20,000 widget purchase order. Yeah. Isn't necessarily one shipment. It it could be many shipments. It could be many origins and many destinations, correct? You got it. That's exactly correct. Usually if it's an inbound order, it'll be one origin. But it's going to be delivered out over a period of time. It's not just one shipment. So you're going to break that down into multiple shipments. And then what is meant by the term purchase order management? Because I know that a lot of uh, large inbound customers uh, want us to do purchase order management, and that has a technology element to it as well. Exactly. And that's, that's the key. So usually when we go into a managed trans 
we'll either find that we've got an opportunity for outbound transportation management or inbound transportation management, depending upon their their uh, their challenges that they have internally on their focus areas. But PO management is the client is now sending the purchase order to us, and we're getting that out to the the uh, the vendor. So on the portal, on a PO management portal, they'd log into like an Echo dot com, and that vendor will then kind of click and see their open purchase orders. And the purchase order that vendor goes in and says, "Ah, they want a thousand widgets delivered next Friday." And that vendor then says, "I can deliver all thousand, and I'll be ready to ship on Wednesday." So they're doing that all in our portal, or they're going to say, "Eesh, I don't have a thousand. I can I can go ahead and cut the PO short. I can ship eight hundred. And then the client can either say, don't ship 800, wait till you have 1,000, or yes, go ahead and cut the PO. So all that's happening through our, our portal. And then what happens is once that vendor goes and confirms that they have the inventory, it's truly blue shirts, and the 800 is going to be okay, then they click, it'll be ready on, on Wednesday. Then we do the planning piece, and we say, ah, that's going to go LTL, and we'll send back the bill of lading. So for the client's value to them is – now all of their, their purchase order management and their transportation, cause in their mind, right? The client only knows I need to have those thousand widgets on my dock by next Friday. They don't want to have to work with a vendor and with us. They want one throat to choke through that process. So that's what we mean by PO management. And then they have visibility in one system throughout because one of the biggest struggles when you talk to a shipper, Today is vendors and 3PLs usually point the finger at each other when a failure occurs. The vendor says the 3PL didn't pick up on time. I gave them plenty of notice. The 3PL or transportation provider will point back at them and say they weren't ready. I showed up. They didn't have it or they didn't tell me it was going to be ready. So it takes out that bottleneck for the shipper because that bottleneck was creating, again, going back to it, delays at delivery, which was causing their inventory levels to go up and or customer satisfaction to go down. So that's why it's such a big push by so many people is they've had two owners and they want one place to see it. So that's that's the third piece. And then the fourth, fourth piece of technology that is really coming about is a lot of our clients are going to omni-channel, right? They've got the direct-to-home and they have still their DC or their big box business. And so they want a system that can also rate parcel. Now, parcel has always been an interesting challenge for the industry as a whole, because really in North America, you've got two players. you got UPS and FedEx. That's it. They're not going to allow us to buy rates from them, but they would like our technology to be able to rate it and send it back to them along with their documents for printing. So those are the four pieces. Once we nail those four pieces, I think we can compete with anybody anywhere in the world. And I'm thinking that there's one other piece we should do that uh, I know we do a little bit of it. You go up market and you're talking about predominantly truckload shippers, a lot of those shippers will want uh, their 3PL to run their routing guide. That's correct. And so um, that's a capability we're working on as well. Right now. So I didn't mention that because it's underway right now, and I have a complete and total confidence in that team that it will be uh, deployed. They're actually building it out to piston specs. I believe the launch is September October for that. And then we already have our list of future enhancements that we need to resell it. So the first launch – is really specific to one of our current clients. I wouldn't say that it's in a position to be resold a lot, but once we do the enhancements after the initial launch for Piston, we're going to we're going to have as good of an offering as anybody out there. 
Now you mentioned selling inbound versus outbound. It, it seems to me like in our company, um, we predominantly sell outbound, at least transactionally. And, uh, going back to my LTL days, you know, in LTL, we, we also did a lot of inbound selling. So it was a matter of, you know, talking to a, a purchasing agent or, or somebody that was involved in procurement, particularly as it pertains to the terms of sales where, you know, they're, they're owning the freight once it leaves the shipper's dock and, uh, therefore they own the transportation. Uh, do you think there's opportunity for us to do more inbound selling? I think we probably do more than we realize and we just call it outbound because it depends on who's paying the freight bill, right? Every shipment's, every outbound shipment's somebody's inbound shipment. So I think it's about following who's paying the freight. So I think in larger companies, you know, kind of Fortune 1000s, they usually pay the freight for themselves on the inbound side. The smaller companies usually have the vendors pay for their inbound freight because it's one less headache for them to do. So I, you know, it would be an interesting study. I could probably get with Scott or, or, or Zach and have them actually run how much is inbound versus outbound because I truly don't know um, what the breakdown is in the company, but we're always going after who's paying the freight because they control it. So it'd be an interesting study, Doug. I can tell you this in managed trans, historically it was outbound. Over the last two years, we've seen a lot of inbound opportunities. And when we look at a lot of the RFPs that are coming out, it's still one of the largest pain points why the PO management is so important. And I think that that will be the fastest growing segment, at least of MT, is solving those challenges, not just the freight piece, but the PO management piece. Great. Um, let's touch briefly on truckload brokerage. Sure. I know one of our challenges has been, uh, maybe this is the elephant in the room, but you know, we've, we've got two approaches to truckload brokerage, the traditional echo approach, uh, very customer centric, service centric, uh, the command business unit approach, which is, you know, pure brokerage. It's, it's, you know, let's, let's, uh, find a truck for the freight that pays the best and make the biggest rip we can. And, uh, you know, we, we like both of those models, uh, but we have to figure out how to get them to play nicely with each other. And, and so that we can maximize our penetration into the marketplace, you know, both by being opportunistic about matching the supply and demand of capacity in a, in a pure brokerage sense, but also in making commitments to, to large shippers who are depending upon us to deliver their freight. And in some cases, contracting with us to do it, you know, any thoughts about how we're going to solve that problem? Well, I think that's, that's the challenge for me and, and my team to kind of approach. But I think the one thing that I would correct you on is, yes, I think that the multimodal and, and the legacy echo employees were customer centric. I think command, or CBU was very customer centric too. I think the type of freight they're going after was fundamentally different. So the way I kind of try to, to summarize it for people is, is inside of Echo with the larger shippers, we want it to be a strategic partner of theirs and we want it to be a primary position on their routing guide. And, and it was really important for us, especially when we were kind of getting going in our truckload is, is being able to sit at the table with our client and look them in the eyes and make a commitment for the volume of the freight that we we're going to handle and make sure we lived up to that commitment. That meant also that we had yo-yo um, margins, right? Because when the market was tight, the margins get squeezed. When the market was loose, the margins got bigger. But it was just an approach to how we we looked at winning the business. I think the CBU, their strategy with an RFP was to be in second, third, or fourth place. So maybe not win and have to be a primary carrier unless – 
they were required to, to be contracted, but really been a backup. So I think it was two different ways of approaching it. I think both have successes and challenges. I think the challenge is if you're not in a primary position, um, a lot of shippers are always looking to reduce the amount of transportation providers they have, right? Because they want fewer people to manage. And so you have to be relevant in your customer supply chain to make sure you stay on track with them. At CBU, I think the value is obviously they get really nice margins because oftentimes they're coming and helping them when other transportation companies failed. So that's kind of how I look at the, the, so I think they both cared a lot about the customer. I think that it was just a different value that they provided to the clients. And the reality is we're going to have to figure out how to support both. If we're going to grow to our $3 billion that we've discussed as, as a company, we've got to be successful in both of those, but we're going to have to be strategic and make some, some difficult decisions of where do we want to be primary? How much do we want to be primary and make sure as a company as a whole, we stand behind those commitments instead of maybe trying to be primary for everybody. Does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> Great. Well, that's about all the time we have. Um, any other points or comments you'd like to make? Yeah, I think the only thing that I want to say to everybody out there is thanks. This has been uh, this has been kind of a crazy year, right? We we had the integration, which is as far as I'm concerned, complete. Now everything's just continuous process improvement. Where we are, where we are, then we strive to get better every day. Uh, we're all under one roof, so let's spend some time and really drive home our values together. I think the easiest way to bring these teams together is to really rally behind our values and help each other out. There are so many smart people inside this company that I've never been able to ask a question. I can't find somebody to help me get the answer to. And I just encourage everybody out there to reach out, meet somebody new in Echo. There's 2,400 people here now. Go find a new friend. Go make a new friend. Live the values together, and we will solve these together. Don't just wait for Doug or Kyle or Dave or Cheryl or or Miles or myself to solve those problems. Let's do it from the ground up. Great. Well, I uh, appreciate hearing your insights and uh, your history and looking forward to all the things you're going to do with Echo. And uh, my guest today has been Sean Burke, Chief Commercial Officer of Echo. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Doug.